The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest this week is Dr. Patrick Moore, a leader in the international environmental field for over 30 years. With a PhD in ecology from the University of British Columbia, Dr. Moore is a founding member of Greenpeace and served for nine years as president of Greenpeace Canada and seven years as a director of Greenpeace International. Patrick was a driving force shaping policy and direction while Greenpeace became the world's largest environmental activist organization. In 1991, he founded Green Spirit, a consultancy focusing on environmental policy and communications in natural resources, biodiversity, energy, and climate change. Patrick was a member of the British Columbia government appointed roundtable on the environment and the economy from 1990 to 1994. In 2000, Dr. Moore published Green Spirit, Trees Are the Answer, a photo book that provides a new insight into how forests work and how they can play a powerful role in solving many of our environmental problems. In recent years, Patrick has focused on the promotion of sustainability and consensus building among competing concerns. He speaks and lectures frequently at universities, community meetings, and conferences. As a public figure and a senior spokesperson for the Forest Alliance of BC, Dr. Patrick Moore appears on national television and radio and is often quoted in the press. So we're very fortunate to have him on our show, that's for sure. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Good to be with you, Tom. Beautiful day here on Vancouver Island. Patrick, we've got a very large uh, audience. It's uh, growing week after week, and I'm sure the majority of them have never heard you speak. They, I'm sure, all know your initial involvement with Greenpeace and the fact that uh, you're probably public enemy number one of Greenpeace now. Uh, Tell the audience uh, how you got involved, how you started Greenpeace, and actually why did you leave? Well, Jay, I grew up on the north tip of Vancouver Island in the rainforest with no road to my community, which was actually floating on the ocean in a small inlet named Winter Harbor. So I I grew up with boats uh, rather than vehicles. And I grew up in the rainforest, playing on the tide flats, down the dock, in nature, totally immersed in it. So even though I didn't realize it intellectually at the time, I just became a lover of the natural world by being in it. And so when I got sent away to boarding school after going to school by boat for eight years to a one-room schoolhouse in the close-by fishing village, I learned city ways pretty quickly. Uh, 
we had gone to the city every year in the winter for a few weeks to get to get out of the wilderness so I sort of knew my way around and so I was fortunate to be sent to a very good private boarding school named St. George's in Vancouver where I studied life science I I gravitated towards uh, biology uh, plant biology in particular and forestry but everything to do with with science and when I entered my Bachelor of Science honors at University of British Columbia, uh, I focused on life science in biochemistry and genetics, uh, cell biology. And at that time, the knowledge of DNA had been well established. So uh, cell biology was really an important factor. And, and as I went on, I learned about the fact that there was this thing called ecology, a science that had never been mentioned in the popular press at this time in the mid-1960s. So I enrolled eventually in a PhD in ecology and became the first ecology PhD in Canada, as far as I know, in 1973 when I graduated. But while I was doing my PhD in ecology, I learned about this little group named the Don't Make a Wave Committee that was beginning to meet in the church basement of the Unitarian Church in Vancouver to plan a protest voyage against U.S. hydrogen bomb testing in Alaska. And I ended up sailing on the boat with 12 other activists, all of us professionals, but it was the 70s, so we all kind of looked like hippies. And we took on the most powerful organization in the world, the United States Atomic Energy Commission, that was blowing off five megaton hydrogen bombs underground in the Aleutian Islands at the island of Amchitka. And because we made a, a, a voyage out onto the ocean, moving in the direction of these tests, we caught the media's attention. And before you know it, tens of thousands of people were marching in the streets against these nuclear tests, whereas prior to that, there'd really been no public opposition to them. And it wasn't two months later that President Nixon canceled the remaining H-bomb tests, largely due to us providing a kind of spearhead for this campaign. And that was the beginning of Greenpeace. We ended up naming ourselves Greenpeace uh, after that uh, because we wanted to combine green for environment and peace for humanity. So one really important fact about Greenpeace's evolution is that at the beginning, we had a strong humanitarian orientation. We weren't just for the environment and the green of the world at the expense of human beings. We saw this as something that could work together. And But as time went on, as we went on to stop French nuclear testing in the South Pacific, to save 30,000 whales from being slaughtered every year in, in the oceans of the world, mainly by Russia and Japan, and then to take on a lot of toxic issues, uh, helping to stop toxic waste being dumped into the rivers around the world, as it had been for many decades, where there were basically no fish left in so many of the big rivers in Europe, like the Rhine and the Elbe, the Danube, and the Thames in Great Britain. Uh, we stopped that, and, and those rivers are cleaner and have lots of life in them today. But as time went on, the green became the emphasis and the peace kind of got dropped off. And I found myself in an organization that had evolved uh, 
now having been pretty well heavily hijacked by the political left because they realized there was money and fortune uh, and fame and power uh, in the environmental movement. And all of a sudden, the environmental movement started characterizing humans as the enemies of the earth, the enemies of nature. And that is where philosophically I had to part ways because I know that humans, the human species is part of life, evolved with all the rest of life through the hundreds of millions and billions of years since life first appeared on this earth in the oceans as microscopic plankton and bacteria and gradually evolved to the point where it came on land about 550 million years ago. Uh, and here we have today with humans in this in incredible position that we are in in evolution, but we should be celebrating all life, not just other life besides people. And so that was just too much like original sin for me, like as if we were the only bad species. So I had to leave because of that, but it took uh, actually a sharper point of the stick to get me actually to leave because I didn't really know what to do next at the time. I'd been in Greenpeace for 15 years when I left in 1986. And I had been an international director since we created Greenpeace International in 1979. That's, that had been my life since I left university. And, but now my fellow directors, uh, I was one of six international directors for the, those years since we started Greenpeace International. They decided that we should start a campaign to ban chlorine worldwide. And I'm going, you guys, I mean, you have to be a bit more nuanced than that. Chlorine is one of the elements in the periodic table, one of the building blocks of the universe. And not only that, using chlorine for sterilizing water uh, in drinking water, swimming pools and spas is the biggest advance in the history of public health. Mm -hmm. And our, our medicines are largely made with chlorine chemistry, over 80% of our pharmaceuticals are made with chlorine chemistry and 25% of them actually have chlorine in them. So to come up- I've got, to, I've got to jump in here, Patrick, and tell you a story. People think I'm crazy about chlorine. Uh, I'm a physical fitness nut. And uh, I, one day a week, I swim for two hours nonstop. And uh, in a pool, every so often I start getting a cramp. Well, I know that that pool water is so healthy with all the chlorination and it's chlorinated to the point where I sneeze for a day, but I have no worry about taking a few gulps of that water to ward off the cramp. And people would say I'm crazy, but I know the value of chlorine that you've described is one of the most important chemicals in life. And you described it exactly that way. Yes, well, just the example of table salt is all you really need too, Jay. Table salt is sodium chloride. It is an essential nutrient. You cannot live without it. Life would be impossible in the sea without it too. And so sodium chloride is an essential nutrient at low levels, like putting a little salt on your food. But at higher levels, all it takes is five tablespoons ingested at one time and you will die. So this is true of so many elements. And that's why when it came to pollution and toxic substances, toxicology 
Greenpeace failed because none of its other directors had any science education. And they, they were thinking in black and white when in fact toxicity is about the dose received. Many substances are beneficial at low levels, kind of neutral at medium levels and poisonous at higher levels. And this kind of escaped the leadership of Greenpeace at the time because it had become very political and much less scientific than it had been even at the beginning. And so that is why I had to leave in 1986. I wanted to fashion myself as a sensible environmentalist rather than as an extremist mm -hmm. because the ex extremists are using misinformation, sensationalism, and fear, which has nothing to do with science. Science should not use misinformation, should use the facts and the truth to the best we know it. And where we don't know what the truth is, we should be willing to admit it. And there's too much of this making things up today, uh, fear campaigns that are simply being made up, even though we don't really know if they have any validity. And in fact, the purpose of my book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, is to show and to prove that many of these scare stories are in fact fake. They do not have any basis in reality. And, and in fact, most of them don't. I, I actually don't know of one that actually threatens life on earth in the next 10 years, like so many people are claiming about all kinds of different things. Especially, well, I want to jump in again, uh, Patrick, uh, since you mentioned your book. A uh, few of our listeners will get a chance uh, to chat with you as uh, Tom and I are today, but uh, we will link your book uh, at the bottom of our article that we've uh, written about our conversation with you that will uh, appear at americaoutloud.com, or I think is there right now, uh, and we'll link the title of your book. And what I want to say about the book, uh, which I just love so much, is that reading the book uh, is just like sitting down and chatting with you about all the issues you're concerned with. It's a very unusual book that way. And I can tell our listeners that there, there is not a book on the environment that they could possibly enjoy uh, or learn more than your new book. Say the title again, just so it'll stick in their memory. Jay, the title is Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. And what I mean by that is that most of the scare stories, if in fact, probably all of the scare stories are based on things that are either invisible, like carbon dioxide and uh, whatever is supposed to be bad in GMOs, radiation from nuclear power plants. You can't see any of those things with your own eyes. You can't sense them at all. And therefore, people can make up stories about them that you can't verify, that you can't observe for yourself. And the other category is things that are very remote, like polar bears and coral reefs. It's no coincidence that they have become the main icons of the scare you about climate change brigade, because nobody can go to the North Pole and count the polar bears except for a few scientists that are paid a lot of money to go and do it because it takes a lot of money to count the polar bears. And the same for the coral reefs. They are underwater and they are offshore and there aren't that many people who scuba and snorkel in the first place. So in, in, invisible and remote are the keys. So whenever anybody tells you about a scare story, 
Think about whether it's something you could actually observe with your own eyes to verify the truth. And if you can't, then be very, very cautious about accepting that scare story. That's the basic thesis of my book. And then I give 11 different examples ranging from polar bears and coral reefs to baobab trees to walruses supposedly committing suicide because there is no ice in the ocean to the the total fake of ocean acidification it that was just made up that term ocean acidification it isn't true in any way whatsoever and then of course there's the whole issue of, of nuclear energy which is going to be the energy for the future but it's being fought so hard by people who are trying to make people afraid of nuclear plants when you've got more than 90 of them operating every day, 24-7 in the United States, and no one has ever been injured by one. No one, not one person. In Tom, you're in, you're in, Tom is in Canada like uh, you. He's a Canadian citizen. You had a question uh, about the problem with Canadian politicians. Yeah, they regularly call carbon dioxide carbon pollution. And I noticed Biden does the same thing and you know, all sorts of environmentalists do it as well. I mean, surely this is just newspeak like out of 1984. Yes, it is. To say that carbon is pollution is sort of like saying that food is pollution because carbon is the primary food of life. And one thing I say is we've got we got to start thinking like plants. We, we aren't plants, we're animals, of course, but every animal depends completely on plants. So we should be concerned about what's good for plants. And the main thing that's good for plants is carbon dioxide, because that's where they get their carbon to make the carbon-based life, which is all of life on the planet. And that's where we get our carbon in the final analysis, because it has to come through plants. All animals depend upon plants. And even if we eat animal we're eating an animal that depended on plants so i used to laugh at people you know grannies who would say oh my plants just love it when i talk to them it makes them grow better and i'm going yeah sure your plants have ears and they make that they feel good no that's plants aren't don't have those things and then i realized how foolish i'd been to think that way because when you're talking to your plant you are breathing 40,000 parts per million CO2 on them, a hundred times the concentration in the atmosphere. So you're basically giving, you're giving them super fertilizer, concentrated food. And uh -huh. that's how we, that's how we should think of CO2 as food, not as poison. Yeah. In 2019, in seminars in Montreal and Toronto, you showed a slide that said the following. Our CO2 emissions have reversed the 150 million year decline in CO2 and restored a balance to the global carbon cycle. We have saved life on Earth from an early demise. <laughs> well, that's not what you hear from politicians. Can you speak more about that? Yes, it's, it's, it's amazing that the alarmists get away with making it seem as though the world began in 1850, because that's what they're focusing on is the fact that CO2 has gone up since 1850, and the temperature has increased by one degree Celsius or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit in that time. A perfectly natural amount of temperature increase for 150 plus years through the cycles that temperature has gone through. This is nothing compared to some of the much more rapid changes in climate 
that have occurred in the past when humans weren't burning any fossil fuels. And by the past, I mean the last hundred million, the last billion years. People don't even think about that. And we do have actual quite good records from marine sediments and ice cores going back millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years to show what was happening between CO2 and temperature in the past. And it's very clear from that, that not only is CO2 not the main cause of the global temperature at any given time, but very often it's the temperature that is the cause of the change in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, especially during this recent Pleistocene ice age, which began 2.6 million years ago and that we are still in nobody's being told that, but it's true. The ice age has not ended. This is just an interglacial period, one of more than 40 that has occurred since the beginning of the Pleistocene. And if everything goes according to Hoyle, there will be another major glaciation period with its maximum about 80,000 years from now. They've been in 100,000 year cycles. And if you want to think about the real history of the earth, you have to be able to think in 100,000-year periods, in million-year periods, in 100-million-year periods, because that is the time periods in which evolution has occurred on this planet. And if you just pretend that the world started at 1850, you're not going to get a true picture of the situation. It's like kindergarten rather than oh, university. And Pat, Patrick, I started my career actually in geology, and uh, historical geology is one of the first courses I ever took and I learned exactly that. And I, I've seen life uh, ever since uh, through that uh, lens. In fact, I, I really think that uh, high schools should teach geology before they teach chemistry or biology, because in later life, uh, everybody walks through nature and sees uh, natural things. When I go on a highway where it's been uh, cut to make a road and I can look at the layers of rock and see really millions of years of history. You know, I understand it. Few people uh, do, because, but they, they, they understand a little chemistry, a little biology, but they rarely get to use it in later life. And uh, geology, if people saw life the way you've just described it in those kind of years, they would not be taken in by the lies uh, that are being told by acting like our history began in 1850. But I want you to move to a, a topic that everybody listening knows a little bit about, and that's the polar bear icon. By now, I'm guessing most of our listeners realize that polar bears are not in decline. Uh, they should not be the icon of global warming. And you're from Canada, and I know that we get a count uh, to a certain extent on polar bears every year at Churchill, Manitoba. Uh, give us a little summary of the actual numbers of polar bears they are and how they are, in fact, thriving in a, in a warm climate uh, rather than dying off in a cold one. Well, Jay, the, 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 the polar bears at Churchill are some of the very southern part of the population. That's about as far south as they ever come. But because Hudson's Bay is covered in ice all through the winter, and the ring seal lives there in that water, uh, it's a great habitat for polar bears. Because you know, the, the Hudson's Bay comes way down into Canada's interior. 
Most of the polar bears, though, are kind of around the Arctic Circle, many of them on Canada's Arctic islands. Canada has more polar bears than any other country. I guess Russia is probably second, and U.S. with Alaska is third. And then there's Denmark that owns Greenland and Norway. So in the 1960s, it was becoming well known that the polar bear population was declining. Wildlife biologists already knew that. And the reason it was declining was overhunting. It had become easy to get a plane to the north to hire an Indian guide, an Inuit guide, and then to get yourself a few polar bear rugs if that's what you wanted. And so this was going on all around the Arctic Circle. And the polar bears numbers had gone down to somewhere between six and 10,000 very few compared to what the natural population had been. So those wildlife biologists went to those polar countries and told them that story. And as a result, in 1973, an international treaty was signed among all polar countries to end the unrestricted hunting of polar bears. There had been no restrictions whatsoever up till then. Any number of people could kill any number of bears in any given year. So that was the turning point. And you never hear that in the media or from any politicians. They never tell you about the, the treaty that was signed in 1973. It might as well be ancient history, I guess, as far as they're concerned. But it wasn't ancient history. It was fairly recently that this was done. And since then, the polar bear population has continued to grow to where today it's somewhere between 30 and 50,000. That's four, five, six times as many as there were in 1973. So it's a total international success story. It mm -hmm. should, that's how it should be reported as one of the main success stories in bringing a species that was going into being endangered back again into a healthy situation. And yet they're yeah. telling that the polar ice is disappearing from climate change, which is also a lie. The polar ice is not disappearing. Every winter, it still calls, covers the entire Arctic Ocean. But in the summer, it retreats. And lately, it's retreated more. And this has been interpreted by people who understand the food chain in the sea, which is what most of the Arctic is. Because when the ice is covering the ocean, the sun can't reach the surface and promote the growth of phytoplankton or you know, small plants which is the basis of the food chain in the ocean. When the ice is retreated a bit more and more of the Arctic is exposed to sunlight in the summer, which is the only time the sun shines up there for six months, it's no sun and dark. That's when the polar bears do their hunting because they get, they get some dusk and you know morning light, but no actual sun above the Arctic circle. So in that mm -hmm. time, the polar bears have grown to a totally healthy population to the extent where the Inuit people who live up there all year, their government of Nunavut in Ukwalawit, which is on the southern end of Baffin Island, passed a resolution two years ago to manage the polar bears, a polar bear management plan, which means if they're attacking your family, you're allowed to kill them now. Like they, you couldn't do that before. It would be Ill illegal to do that, even if they were ram, ram, ramsacking your house. So, oh, wow. But that, that, that law that was passed in the Parliament of Nunavut, which is an official territory 
of Canada was never mentioned in a single newspaper or media report in the country of Canada or in the United States. I've researched this thoroughly. The only newspaper that covered it was also in Nunavut, in Cambridge Bay, mm-hmm. where there's 1,200 people. So, Patrick, the, the Patrick, media- I would like, Patrick, I want to write an article about that. You are so right. This is absolutely news to me. Uh, and I want to tell a broader audience about it. If you would send me electronically any information with regard to that law and why it was passed, uh, I want to expose it uh, to a much larger uh, audience on websites that I write on. I'll do that, Jay. <laughs> if they just Google Polar Bear Treaty 1973, it's there on the Internet for anybody to see, but no one's telling them about it. Mm-hmm. And Susan Crockford, the PhD from University of Victoria, she's actually been saying similar things to what you just said, but she's received huge negative flack, right? Well, I'd say she's been the leader in this, uh, Tom. Uh, I've learned a lot of what I know about this from her. She's been studying this for many, many years. And because she finally managed to break through in some media and get this story out, They fired her from her speaking position at the University of Victoria and fired her from her adjunct professorship, which means Mm. now she can't use the library, she can't collaborate with her fellow scientists, and she can't get grants to do science research. So they basically canceled her because she told the truth. That's what Mm -hmm. happened to Susan Crockford. And I've written about this and talk about it all the time and support her 100%. Because she's the reason why this information finally got out to the world. And even now, they don't want to talk about it. That's what happens when you expose one of their lies. They just stop talking about it altogether and leave mm-hmm. it sit there, you know, because it's still in all kinds of newspapers. And if you, if, you, if you Google it, you'll find all this stuff about polar bears going extinct, when in fact, that's old news. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, it wasn't wasn't news in the first place it was fake news and the truth is the polar bear is an international success story in conservation biology right there's two books that people should look at by susan crockford the polar bear catastrophe that never happened and polar bear facts and myths as well as other books on polar bears people can check them out at polarbearscience.com which is dr susan crockford a zoologist specialized in polar bears her site is exactly that polarbearscience.com. So we'll come back after the break, and I'm going to ask Patrick about his confrontation with the Soviet whaling fleet off of the coast of California in the 1970s. So stay tuned. We'll be back after the break. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. 
go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. So, Patrick, can you tell us about your confrontation with the Soviet whaling fleet off the coast of California back in the 70s? Well, it was a really interesting transition within the Greenpeace group when we had been working for three or four years against nuclear testing, first by the United States and then by France, which was still testing nuclear bombs in the atmosphere in in the South Pacific down near Tahiti, where they were sending radiation all around the world still in that time in the early 1970s. Every other major nuclear nation had agreed to go underground, except for France. And so we sent a boat from New Zealand to Muro Atoll, where these tests were going, two years in a row, and we stopped the underground nuclear testing down there. So we'd had two main major successes with nuclear energy uh, testing. And so we, we didn't have a lot left to do, in fact. We'd, we'd done a lot of good work when one day a fellow named Dr. Paul Spong came to us with another idea. He was a New Zealander, studied psychology, and when the first captive whale, an orca whale, we knew them then by killer whale, but most people know them as orcas now because that's their Latin name, and This was the first orca whale ever brought into captivity in Vancouver, in the aquarium in Vancouver. And so no no orca whale had ever been where it could be studied before. So the head of the aquarium hired Dr. Paul Spong to study this orca whale. Well, he'd done tests like, you know, with chickens, when you get them to peck on a certain number place and you get a reward like a bit of food. He was doing that kind of experiment with the whale. And he was amazed. The whale learned how to get the herring, like, right away. It didn't take five minutes for that whale to figure out what it had to do to get the herring. So Paul was amazed at that because no chicken had ever learned it that fast. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, the whale reversed its activity to doing it wrong every time. (laughs) <laughs> and and then in a very short time from that it started doing it randomly so there was no pattern to the whales where where it pushed the button and paul knew he was the one that was being studied at this point <laughs> wow and so this, they this, yeah this, <laughs> the, the, they are really smart 
Well, most people don't realize that the whales and dolphins, the cetaceans, even the ones that are as small as us, have bigger brains than we do. Even elephants don't have bigger brains than we do. As a matter of fact, they have much smaller brains than we do. No other mammal, aside from whales, has a brain our size. And so we need to, to look at that because there's, a, there's a re- obviously a reason why their brain is so big. And most of us realize that it's their acoustical ability. They, they work more with hearing than they do with vision like we do. Like when we see something, we have to describe it to someone else acoustically if they're not there to look at it. Like if I saw a chair yesterday and I'm trying to describe to you the chair I saw yesterday, it's not that simple a matter because I can't just send you a picture from my brain to your brain. Whereas whales, all they have to do is repeat the acoustic echo they got, the echo that gives them a picture. And Paul found out that a whale could see the difference between a dime and a 25 cent coin from across an Olympic swimming pool with its acoustics. So they have wow. very acute, very acute acoustics. They can see inside each other like x-rays. Uh, there's all kinds. Of, I mean, I could go on and on about the amazing facts about whales, but he told us all this. And as time went on, People started coming to the aquarium in the evening when all the workers had gone home and there was nobody around. And Paul Horn, the flautist, would put down an Indian rug and start playing the flute to the whale, and the whale would come up. And pretty soon, Paul was putting its head in the way, his head in the whale's mouth because he trusted the whale so much. And the whale and the people were getting along like crazy. It was an absolutely amazing situation. And it wasn't long until I guess word got out that these sort of seances were going on with the whale and Paul got <laughs> fired from the aquarium <laughs> on the excuse because they wanted a, they wanted a circus animal. They didn't want uh, some mystical thing going on in the pool there. And uh, cause there wasn't much money in that. And so they got a circus animal and Paul came to us because during this time he had learned all about whales. And one thing he had learned much to the surprise of most people in, ni- in the 1970s, there were still 30,000 large whales being slaughtered every year in the world's oceans, mainly in the Pacific, by the Japanese and the Russians. So, so Paul, Paul Spong, after finding out that there was 30,000 whales still being slaughtered every year, came to us, Greenpeace, Bob Hunter and I, who were the, basically the leadership at that point, and we, in a bit of a hiatus because we done what we could on nuclear testing and told us this story. And he said, you guys are the only ones who know how to go out on the ocean. All the other protesters just walk down the street with a picket sign. They don't know how to go out on the ocean like you do. And we've got to go out on the ocean and confront the whalers out at sea where they're killing the whales. And Bob and I both just went, yes. But about half the people in Greenpeace at that time are going, whales? What's that got to do with anything? We're supposed to be trying to stop nuclear war. And so this is where the peace and the green kind of came into conflict for the first time. And Bob and I just said, no, man, we're going to do this. Uh, We've already stopped U.S. underground hydrogen bomb testing, if that isn't good enough. And so 
Bob and I, and with Bob as the lead, the, the leader, uh, he was a journalist. Uh, he's passed now, but he was an amazing person. And I was kind of his right-hand man, second in command. And we uh, went ahead uh, with Paul Spong and others who all kinds of people wanted to save the whale. And so we got a boat, uh, the same one we'd used to go against the U.S. hydrogen bomb test, and went out in the Pacific Ocean to stop the whaling. And Paul Spong had gone to Norway, where the International Whaling Commission records are, and found out that the Russian whaling fleet, every year in the summer, came off the coast of California outside what was then the 12-mile limit, not the 200-mile limit. So they were just over the horizon, and nobody in the United States except the CIA knew about it. Of course, of course, the intelligence people knew the Russians were coming offshore there and taking hundreds of sperm whales every year, but that was not public knowledge. We exposed that, and we got in front of the harpoons. But the funniest story was, was, was around the very first encounter when we approached the Russian harpoon boat. There's a big factory ship, too. Like, there's about 12 harpoon boats that are like the wolves that go out and kill the whales all around. And then they tow them back to the factory ship, which is where they're taken on deck and cut up and into various pieces. And so we went up to one of the boats that killed the whales to let them know what we were going to do, that we were going to get in front of their harpoon, which nobody else in the world had ever done before to try to protect the whale. And they looked down at us and, you know, we had brought ballpoint pens and playboy magazines and some, a couple of pairs of blue jeans thinking this is the kind of thing that whalers out on the sea would want is sort of like American trinkets. And uh, no, one guy leans over the side because we looked like a bunch of hippies. Most of us had long hair. I had an Afro out, out to the nine. And, uh, but we were all professional people. I was doing my PhD in ecology and there were journalists and scientists and all kinds of people on our, in our group that were serious about what we were doing. And this guy leans over the side and says, Hey, you guys got it any acid? Because <laughs> 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 it, was, it, it was in the middle of the hippie era and the psychedelic era and everything. And no, we didn't have any acid, but, uh, we got a good laugh out of it, and and uh, I guess it sort of built up a little bit of communication and camaraderie. We weren't there to harm the whalers. We were there to make a statement, and so we went and got ourselves in front of the harpoon, and by gosh, that harpooner fired a shot over top of our heads with the camera rolling, and the harpoon went right into that whale, and that's, that's like three seconds of film went around the world that next that that next afternoon when we came into San Francisco with the footage and distributed it to the media and that's what made Greenpeace what it what it became the most famous environmental group in the world that was willing to do daring stunts uh, in front of the camera to get attention to tell people about what needed to be done to save whatever part of the environment we were focused on at the time. And uh, it was a wonderful moment because uh, it went on then for years. That was 1975. And it wasn't until 11 years later that I, I did have to leave because of 
basically because we'd been hijacked by the political left and we were being used for political purposes, fundraising purposes, instead of for what were true environmental purposes. And, well, and I've got to tell I, us, to be- I want to tell a similar story. And I think that I'm sure that's a story that our listeners have never heard. And it's a beautiful story. And it is sad that a great organization was taken over by the left. But I had a very similar experience. Uh, You are probably not aware of this, Patrick, but I'm one of six people who worked in the late 60s to uh, convince the government to form an environmental protection agency. And we worked for four or five years and we succeeded in 1971. We got Richard Nixon to sign on to the development of an environmental protection agency. And in the next 10 years, the 70s, we did phenomenal work in developing legislation to protect our water supply on waste disposal, the use of agricultural chemicals, rules on on mining technology. We passed a network of laws in the 70s that really made our environment the best in the world. And starting in 1980, the Environmental Protection Agency was infiltrated entirely by leftists that turned EPA just the same way that Greenpeace, a wonderful organization, was turned into a leftist organization, not doing any good anymore, but actually doing a great deal of harm. It's the same story. Mm-hmm. Jay, you must be awfully proud of the work you did there. Uh, I know I followed that whole history, and when it culminated in CO2 being declared a, a pollutant, uh, I mean, anybody who knew anything knew that that was the end of their uh, trustworthiness in any shape, way, or form. And it's just a terrible thing that happened. And congratulations yeah, exactly. on, on... Well, thank you. Yeah. It is, it's the very same story. Tom, you were about to say. Yeah, so what is the best way for us to oppose this Marxist takeover of all the environmental movement? I mean, the fact is, most people are, are environmentalists. They want to see the nature protected and... Uh, kept for their grandchildren and that sort of thing. So what should we do to try and fight back against the Marxist takeover? Well, the, the sad thing is, is that the public is being lied to. The media has basically been bought and paid for uh, to, to a large extent. There's still a few places where you can get decent information. And every time you mem- mention their name, you're t- t- called a white supremacist or something. So uh, it's really got bad. I mean, the real problem is what I call the downside of mechanization, which could also be called urbanization, is that almost everybody now lives in a completely artificial environment. And they've all been convinced, most of them have been convinced that it's the people out in the country that are uh, plowing the fields and chopping the trees and digging for ore, drilling for oil, and, 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 and mining for coal, that they are the enemies of the earth. When it, if it wasn't for those people in the country, which are now a small minority and don't really have much power in terms of the voting uh, democracy, uh, those are the people that are making it possible for the people in the cities to be alive. Mm-hmm. If, if it wasn't for the food and the energy and the materials coming into the city from the people who are working to get those uh, things for the people in the city and for themselves, but only in a minority. Uh, there, there, there wouldn't be any cities if it wasn't for 
the fact that resources are being supplied to them to make them run like they do. And now we've mm-hmm. got movements that want to want to basically cripple the whole system with net zero and banning fossil fuels and all these stupid ideas. And I can I guess I can see how people who have grown up in a completely uh, sort of artificial urban environment just don't understand how things really work and are easily uh, e- easily convinced by propaganda and lies that we could have a civilization without fossil fuels. And then on the other hand, the, the same people who are against fossil fuels are also against the only real alternative we have to displace a large percentage of fossil fuels, and that is nuclear energy, the energy of the future, the energy source that has fuel for tens of thousands of years, unlike the fossil fuels, which are precious. So the reason we should be conserving fossil fuels isn't because they're dangerous and going to destroy the earth. No, it's because they're so precious and there isn't an infinite amount of them. And we should conserve them for things that nothing else can do, like flying an airplane, for example. You can't do mm-hmm. that with nuclear energy. And, but you can do most other things with nuclear energy, like run ships and run railroads and, and, uh, and some certain amount of automobiles. Uh, we can replace all the energy for buildings with nuclear energy because anything stationary can be run with nuclear energy. Like anything stationary can be run with electricity pretty much. And mm-hmm. that's what nuclear energy produces. So when you've got a situation where a large number of people in, in this day and age seems to be almost a majority of people think we should ban fossil fuels soon and are also against the only technology that could actually replace them in any kind of viable way, we're in a real conundrum politically. Well, Patrick, this- Patrick, I'm, I'm the resident optimist here, and I want to tell the audience they need not worry about the banning of fossil fuels or the end of the fossil fuel era or actually the end of life as they know it. It is not going to happen. This administration has a very short window of doing the the dirty work of environmental zealots, uh, really anti-humanist people that hate life, hate America. And uh, I am spreading a very, very optimistic viewpoint by telling people that I'm very confident that uh, next June, Mr. Trump is going to run for a House seat in Florida, he's going to win the seat. The Republicans and conservatives in Congress are going to take over the House. And in January of 23, Mr. Trump is going to become the Speaker of the House, which controls all the money spent by this country. And the pendulum is going to start swinging back in favor of people who have the good sense in how this country should be. Jay, I've, I've heard that scenario. I've heard it promoted and I've heard it poo-pooed. I sure hope it comes true. And I know that President Trump is not so egotistical that he would not stoop to a lower position than the one he's held in the past in order to make this happen. So I'm, I'm all with you on that. I, I do believe that, it's, that, that that is the most logical scenario I've heard for a gradual return to sanity. In, in the United States, that I sh- if it doesn't happen, we really are in for a bad ride. Mm-hmm. 
In our last three or four minutes, I'm just wondering if we can talk about what the end game is for those most responsible for things like the climate alarm and the distortion of the environmental movement. I mean, what are they really trying to do in the long run? I think they're deluded for one thing. I don't think that their objectives are in any way sensible. And so we're dealing with people who are trying to take us down an impossible road. It's not possible to do what they are saying we should do from a technical point of view. And these people have no understanding of science or technology or mechanics or physics or any of the other things that actually limit what you can actually do in this world. It, it, you can't just make up a fantasy and expect it to happen if it's against the rules of nature. This is the big problem we face. And as, as I see it, fossil fuels will continue to be important. But if we don't move quickly to adopt nuclear energy on a much wider scale, the fossil fuels will run out much sooner than they would if we took that sensible pathway. That's where, where I just don't understand. The reason I don't understand it is because it's not logical. And mm -hmm. I, tend to use, I tend to use logic a fair amount, uh, which is basically basing your thinking on things that are actually factual and possible rather than fanciful and impossible. And that, that's where we are today. And you know where I think these people would take us if we followed their path? They would take us to a world run by bureaucrats in, bureaucrats in Beijing. That's what they would do. And what, what, what else would global government end up being if it wasn't that? The whole idea of globalism is insane. And here we have only a few holdouts left, like Hungary in Central Europe, that has a leadership that understands the need for borders and the benefits of nationalism. This idea that we can have one global government, it certainly couldn't possibly be democratic and it almost certainly would be controlled by China. They control the UN already, and that's what, what it would lead to. So I do not want to see a world controlled so strongly by China as what would happen if the left got their way. Well, Tom and I did a two, we did two shows on China. If uh, our listeners go to our uh, podcast, the last two weeks, we did uh, shows on China with a fellow with great expertise on it. And uh, we said very much like the things you're saying. And we think uh, we can stop China from taking over, which is exactly where the negative powers that be want us to go. Well, I wish you the strongest of tailwinds, Jay, in, in working to influence that outcome that you mentioned earlier. I just sincerely hope that happens. But I also sincerely hope that people will read my book. As, as Jay says, it's conversational, it's not difficult, it's meant for high school and older in order that it is able to be read by parents and given to their children of, of whatever age from grade nine and up, I would say. And even some kids who are excelling in English and literature could read it even earlier age. It's literature more than it is science a jargon but it explains the science in terms that people can understand. Fake, invisible catastrophes and threats of doom. You will be surprised. The coral reefs are thriving and prefer warm seas 
over cold ones, of course. That's why they're all in the tropics. The polar bears are thriving. This is a proven fact. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is fake, and my book proves that beyond a reasonable doubt. So I can just tell you that in 11 chapters, you're going to learn a lot about the lies that are being told to you by the political left masquerading as ecologists and environmentalists, when in fact the real truth is that human beings are an important part of life. We are thriving, as are many of the species that we live with on this earth. We're saving endangered species from going extinct. Very few species are going extinct any longer compared to the past, largely because of our efforts and our concern to make sure they don't go extinct. The passenger pigeon was the bellwether on this, and that was only a little over 100 years ago when finally the general public realized that extinction was important and had to be prevented. Up till then, it was only a few naturalists that ever talked about it. So I would just say, please read my book and all the best to everybody out there uh, in, in, in understanding the true nature of the environment and the situation we're in today. Carbon dioxide is the salvation of life. We are part of that. It was getting lower and lower and lower all through the millions of years. You'll see why in my book. It's too much complication to talk about here. Our CO2 is benefiting the earth and there is no negative to it. It's good if it gets a little bit warmer. It's not going to get much warmer. And it's really good if there's more CO2 for the plant on this earth to grow us more food, grow us more trees and make all of earth greener. Well said. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, we're going to include a link to your book and also our article, which just appeared on the AmericaOutloud.com website. It's the lead article right now. It's entitled Dr. Patrick Moore, one of the world's leading warriors for environmental truth. And it's got a picture of you actually in the boat approaching the Soviet whaling ship. So this is Dr. Jay Lear and Tom Harris with our guest, Dr. Patrick Moore, signing out from the other side of the story. 